Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Arsalan Iftikhar, is the author of the new book, Scapegoats, How Islamophobia Helps Our Enemies and Threatens Our Freedoms. Arsalan is a human rights lawyer by training and was one of the original guests on this podcast a couple of years ago. I think it was episode number four, where he discusses his career and life journey that led him to this line of work. Arsalan is on TV a lot, and oftentimes he gets the call after there's been some sort of terrible terrorist attack. And to that end, we have an extended conversation about what it's like to be a Muslim public intellectual these days. And it was great to catch up with Arsalan again. In this episode, we discuss his new book, the different strains of Islamophobia that can be found in Europe and the United States, and what his process is after there's been yet another mass murder event and he's called on TV to talk about it. As always, if you're new to the podcast, welcome. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to check out our archive, subscribe on iTunes, get the app, get in touch with me. It's all there. And now here is Arsalan Iftikhar. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I'd love to learn how you got Jimmy Carter to blurb the book. That's pretty <laughs> awesome. It is pretty awesome. Uh, and it was it was quite serendipitous as to how I was able to get President Jimmy Carter to uh, blurb my uh, latest book, Scapegoats. I was actually contacted by the Carter Center on a, on a separate topic. They wanted me to... Uh, speak on a panel uh, in Atlanta on, on uh, ISIS or, you know, some Muslim du jour topic. And uh, we, we the the lady at the center and I started talking and uh, let her know that I, I have a book coming out and I would love to, uh, you know, get President Carter's endorsement or at least, you know, get it in his hands. And uh, she said, sure, send me a copy. I'll see what I can do. And uh it, it was just like it was like heaving like half court shot after half court shot, and for some reason, I, I happened to make a couple in a row, and I got lucky. And uh, she actually said that he um, he doesn't really blur books anymore. Obviously, he's, you know that's such an advanced age, uh, but you know she, that she was able to to get it through uh, the pipeline into his hands, and he felt that it was an important enough topic, uh, you know, to offer a front cover endorsement. And so nice. I'm very grateful for that. What did the uh, blurb say? So President Jimmy Carter said that Scapegoats is an important book that shows Islamophobia must be addressed urgently. Violence or hate speech against any community based on their faith is un-American and is against our founding principles. That's awesome. Yeah, it was, uh, it, you know, to, to have uh, an ex-president uh, speak of that vociferously uh, against Islamophobia, uh, you know, was, uh, was a, you know, I think it was, it was a really uh, an important thing uh, to happen. 
So when did you start writing this book? Take me back to, to the idea for the book and, and how it, it started and where it all started. Well, it's actually a really good question. I've always wanted to write a book about Islamophobia since, obviously, as you know, I've been one of the preeminent Muslim uh, pundits on television addressing Islamophobia for the last 15 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I've you know obviously been putting out fires for many, many years, and I was actually approached uh, early last year by the uh, founder of Salon.com, uh, whose name is David Talbot. And he actually um, had been assigned to run a new publishing imprint uh, for Skyhorse Publishing in New York. And they wanted to run a, a series of books called Hot Books that dealt with sort of the the hot button political issues of today in the United States. And there were six of them. One was on police brutality, one was on global warming, and one they had chosen to be on Islamophobia. And so uh, so I was approached by, uh, by them to write the book. And uh, obviously during this time, we saw the rise of uh, Donald Trump and the 17 other uh, Republican presidential uh, Republican presidential primary candidates. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's been, uh, I could write another book, uh, again, uh, sequel already based on what we've seen. Yeah. Uh, the just, second edition, right? Seriously. In like in the two months since the book's been published. Um, so where, like, how, take me through your process. So, so obviously you've been studying these issues for much of your, uh, adult career. And we talked earlier, yes. Uh, a couple years ago about your, your career path as, as a human rights lawyer, um, as someone, you know, who's often on TV. And, and as an aside, I, I should say, was it like maybe two years ago? I was flipping through the channels on, and I, I landed on CNN. <laughs> and, you know, I don't yeah. like watch a lot of cable news and I, I don't like watch a lot of like non Netflix TV, but I just kind of like just saw, uh, found myself sitting on my couch. I'm like, oh, there's Arsalan. I know him. I like him. He's a smart guy. And I'm yeah. kind of like half paying attention. And it's on Don Lemon's show, and Don Lemon says uh, something to the effect of, uh, "Are you an ISIS sympathizer?" And I like kind of no, put like a said, double he, take. He, well, yeah, take me through what's going through your head at that moment. I, so I, I watched I, this I live, and I really, I literally could not believe what I was seeing. He actually, so uh, he actually asked me live on Jan- in January 2015, so about a year and a half ago. It was actually the night of the Charlie Hebdo attacks in Paris, France. I it was on CNN Tonight prime time in front of tens of millions of people, you know, talking about the Paris attacks with Don Lemon. And in the fourth minute of a six minute interview after I'd spent the first four minutes basically using every superlative in the English language to condemn the attacks in Paris, he apparently had the audacity to ask me, quote, do you support ISIS? Uh, which, as you can imagine, asking a Muslim human rights lawyer if he supports an organization which violates human rights every day is the moral equivalent of asking a white guy if he supports the Ku Klux Klan. And to be honest with you, Mark, and to your listeners, um, you know, I'd actually been on Don Lemon show about a half a dozen times. And I remember live when I'm sitting in the CNN studio and I heard this question come into my earpiece. It's, it's seriously, my hand to God, it's, it's like things went in slow motion. And I, I, I literally, I remember thinking to myself in my brain, I'm like, I know this dummy didn't just ask me if I supported ISIS. It, it was the, the most prolonged, like, uh, three seconds of my life. And the way that I responded was, I just said, wait, did you just ask if I support ISIS? And then I, of course, went on to make my other points. And ironically enough, 
this should show you sort of the uh, the nature of the 24-7 news cycle that we live in today. I actually got more famous, Mark, from that one interview. No, no, hold on a second. Than in 15 years of serious journalism before that. When, after Don Lemon asked me that question, Mark, in 24 hours, there were 5,000 media articles that were, were written about my interview with Don Lemon in places like Deadspin, USA Today, New York Magazine, the uh, Variety, Hollywood Reporter. I was, I was, I was getting, I was getting messaged from like Hollywood actors and comedians, uh, you know, who who had seen my, uh, who had seen that uh, bizarre interview. And, and like I said, um, I, I got more famous from that one uh, viral video than I have from 15 years of of serious journalism. And so that kind of shows the yeah. the state of the American media today. Yeah, I mean, I did a double take, like knowing you. I was like, yeah. Did I just hear that? Hear yeah. That like, yeah. So, so. Um, Welcome to being a Muslim in America today. Well, well, so that, I mean, I have to imagine that experiences like that inform some of the arguments that, that you're making in, in your new book, right? Of course. You know, uh, what, so again, the, the title of my book is Scapegoats for actually a very deliberate reason. Um, you know, some of your listeners might know that scapegoats uh, is actually a biblical term, right? So it first showed up in the Old Testament. Uh, and essentially, you know, it, it talks it about how um, – you know, the the sins of an entire people were laid symbolically upon a scapegoat. And historically, as a civil rights lawyer, what I what I highlight in my book as well is that even though we're dealing with Islamophobia today in the United States, uh, primarily in the Republican Party, uh, we've that we've all been scapegoats before. That again, um, you know, if you just look to the turn of the 20th century and you see, you know, uh, immigrant Catholics being persecuted by native Germanic Protestants and the gangs of New York phenomena, or whether it's 140,000 Japanese Americans who were interned in internment camps during the duration of World War II, whether obviously, you know, it's the specter uh, of anti-Semitism. If you look at the Jim Crow era and the African American civil rights struggle today, what we're seeing now in the post 9 11 world with Islamophobia and anti-Muslim sentiment, it's going to be somebody else tomorrow. And that's why it's really important uh, for us to speak out and speak up for one another as allies, um, especially when we're not affected, because only then will we be able to ensure that we don't make the mistakes of the past in the future. What have been some of the more heartening examples of non-Muslim allies speaking up against Islamophobia in ways that have made sort of a meaningful impact in the public discourse? That's a great question, Mark. Um, you know, in my in the last chapter of my book, I actually spend a lot of it talking about um, my conversation uh, with uh, Leon Weaseltier, um, a longtime literary yeah. critic of the New Republic senior editor at The Atlantic. And he and I actually spoke together two years in a row at the Aspen Ideas Festival. And the last uh, the last talk that we gave together was on anti-Semitism and Islamophobia and how they were both uh, poisonous fruits of the same Abrahamic tree. And basically, you know, Leon has become a dear, dear beloved friend. He actually wrote a back cover blurb for my book as well. But, um, you know, we, he obviously talked about how, you know, the, the tragic history of anti-Semitism, particularly in Western Europe, you know, is now manifesting itself in, in Islamophobia in France and in, uh, in Western European countries and in the United States. And, you know, we talked about the need for us 
uh, as Abrahamic cousins to speak to one another, um, you know, in terms of highlighting the similarities that we have as opposed to the differences. Um, and, uh, you know, that that any sort of religious intolerance, any sort of xenophobia needs to be called out, uh, you know, regardless of who the victims are and regardless of who the um, sort of privileged majority population is. Uh, so uh, you mentioned Europe. I'd love to talk to uh, about Europe and, and the United States uh, in, in sort of separate uh, tracks because oh, totally. I feel like the, the, the experience uh, – They're totally is, different. You're right. totally different. Um, you know, there seems to be at, at least in, in Europe, and it's something that we here in the United States have seemingly been uh, somewhat immune from, although maybe it's getting worse, this almost negative feedback loop in which um, social stigmatization – of immigrants who primarily come from, you know, who, whose family are primarily Muslim. You know, I, I don't right. I think it's probably accurate to call them like Muslim immigrants, just people, yes. you know, mostly I think like the fact that they are immigrants is, is more animating uh, than their religion. But, but the fact is, you know, you have this negative feedback loop where you have uh, an underclass in Europe um, yep. who are stigmatized, who don't have the same access to opportunities, who are victims of, of racism. Uh, and that underclass also, uh, seems to produce uh, a you know in more recent times um, a number of of mass killers and yeah. how you know when like how do you respond react like how do you like think about this this sort of negative feedback loop um, and and like in what ways um, like like how how do you interpret what's happening in Europe? Yeah, so. You asked a lot of really coaching questions there, Mark. And obviously, the first thing that you know we have to make a distinction that you just made is that when you look at the European uh, diaspora of Muslims and the American diaspora of Muslims, uh, there's a night and day difference uh, between the two, and uh, it primarily actually revolves around immigration laws. Uh, historically speaking, uh, the United States has always had very strict immigration laws, and that means that historically. When it comes to uh, immigration from the Middle East and predominantly Muslim-majority nations uh, 50, 40, 50, and 60 years ago, uh, it was primarily the cream of the crop. It was the intelligentsia. It was the brain drain, right? It was the doctors and the engineers and the accountants, uh, the, the educated class of the Muslim world came to the United States. On the flip side of that, Europe actually had very uh, relaxed immigration laws. They had these things, as you know, called the quote-unquote guest worker programs, mm-hmm. which were essentially slave labor. They essentially, they they trucked in millions of brown Muslim uh, men from uh, the Maghreb in North Africa, uh, Turkey, other parts of the Muslim world, uh, essentially as the underclass, uh, you know, slave labor uh, for the jobs that Europeans didn't want to do. And but the the fatal flaw that they made politically was with this guest worker program. They thought that these people would eventually go back home, and that was their that was their fatal myopia there because now we have third and fourth generation French Muslims and German Muslims and Dutch Muslims of, you know, Algerian, Moroccan, Tunisian descent, uh, you know, who have been essentially completely isolated into these um, sort of Bantustan ghettos 
within Paris, Amsterdam, uh, or Berlin, uh, you know, and seen as second-class citizens, uh, so much so that, for example, in Germany, even if you, uh, up until a few years ago, uh, you couldn't even, you weren't even given German citizenship, even if you were native-born on that soil, right? So it, it went back to, you know, where your parents came from and what their immigration status was. And so the racism and xenophobia that we see in Europe when it comes to Islamophobia is... Um, in many ways, far more uh, overt and in your face. Uh, they don't have the notion of sort of social graces in the way that we do, or even if you want to call it po political correctness, which I think that Donald Trump has completely hijacked yeah. the meaning of that term, so I don't like using it. But uh, Europeans tend to be actually much more overt with their racism, whereas we Americans... Uh, we, we tend to be a little more subtle about it, even though obviously... Well, we've been socialized to understand that racism is a bad thing. Yes. Uh, and But again, uh, Europeans would probably say the same thing, and they would probably say that they're not being uh, racist, but they are being European, and that, you know, if these brown people don't want to assimilate, you know, they use the word um, assimilation, right? And uh, actually, you and I uh, met... Um, I think over 10 years ago now in Lake Como, Italy, yeah. uh, on, uh, during a symposium on migration. And, you know, we had this discussion on assimilation versus integration. And as an international lawyer, I always make that distinction that it, it's always very ironic to me because it's always the white majority populations that talk about assimilation. Assimilation implies a one-way street, right? Mm -hmm. the, minor the minority group has to assimilate and become like the majority group. But with integration, that's a more of a mutualistic relationship where it's a two-way street. There are duties and obligations from the minority group to the greater society and vice versa. There are duties and responsibilities from the greater society towards the minority groups. Mm -hmm. in, Euro in Europe's case, I see it much more of an assimilation model where they're kind of like, okay, we're going to marginalize you. We're going to discriminate against you but you know what you have to be like us if you don't eat bacon if you don't drink alcohol if you don't wear bikinis then you're never going to be fully european whereas our american constitutional system is a little more pluralistic by its nature in terms of our melting pot and multiculturalism Euro europeans bristle at the notion of multicultural they're like they're we're not multicultural we are french we are german we are dutch uh, they they like that mono monolithicism, uh, the monolithic nature of, of being what they are, and so um, that's sort of the very very sharp tip of a, of a huge iceberg in, in terms of explaining a little bit of the, the yeah. differences. Well, well, the, the, what we're seeing now, at least what, what I'm seeing, is is that you know you're right that historically the United States has been more of kind of that melting pot model, the, the integration model, but there's always been sort of an underbelly and undercurrent of, of, um, you know, a number of people who, you know, believe that the assimilation model or, or the, you will have to be like us model, uh, is maybe more, um, more relevant. And it seems that with the ascent of Donald Trump, these ideas are going kind of from the fringes to the mainstream. Uh, and, and that seems, I don't know, it's sort of scary for me to watch on the side. And I just can't imagine what it is for someone, you know, who is Muslim and brown skin like you to, to have to experience. Yeah. It's, uh, it's obviously very disconcerting when you see your country, you know, enter into a realm where, uh, you know, the major, the, the presumptive presidential candidate of one of our two major, uh, political parties has publicly stated on more than one occasion that we should ban Muslims from entering the United States. You know what I've said on every television interview that I've done uh, about Donald Trump 
uh, on the Muslim ban. I, I always say, listen, if you can replace the word Muslims with Jews and sound like a Nazi, you probably shouldn't say it. Yes. Uh, I remember, you know, it, you know to, to that end, I remember seeing on Meet the Press and, and yeah. cordially inviting Tom Brokaw to visit you at the internment camp. Yeah, because, you know, this is getting, it's getting real, you know, I mean, obviously, our, our you know, we in the chattering class, you know, it's, it, we're kind of isolated in our bubbles. We kind of laugh at, you know, this this phenomenon of Donald Trump. But, but this is real, you know, I mean, this man uh, beat out 16 other primary presidential candidates uh, to get the to get the nomination of his political party. And, uh, you know, come November, uh, you know, if uh, if if the rest of us, if the rest of uh, non Donald Trump America doesn't come out and vote for Hillary Clinton, then, you know, this nightmare could turn into a reality. So you've been obviously following instances of of Islamophobia and um, mm -hmm. just sort of what seems to be a, a hardening of, of sentiment uh, against Muslims in America by a portion of, of society. Um, I, I guess, is there sort of a moment that you can point to where um, this sentiment seemed to have gone from the deep fringes and, and sort of creeps into the mainstream? Like what have been kind of the main inflection points? That's a good uh, question. And sadly, these inflection points seem to keep shifting. Um, you know, first it was sort of the, the Paris Charlie Hebdo attacks. Uh, we saw the world sort of mobilize in the sort of Je suis Charlie, uh, you know, sort of mindset. And then after the Charlie Hebdo attacks, and we obviously had uh, San Bernardino uh, in December 2015. Um, you know, what's interesting is that when, by the time San Bernardino had happened in uh, late 2015, we had already had over 300 mass shootings in the United States that calendar year, and 99% of them were not committed by Muslims. But it seemed as though with that one mass shooting uh, that occurred in San Bernardino, California, it made it seem as though every mass shooting in America had occurred or had been committed by Muslims, um, you know, so that was a seismic shift uh, in many ways. Uh, even, obviously, you know, the uh, the Orlando gay nightclub shooting recently um, with Omar Mateen killing uh, over 50 people in a horrific act of homophobic mass murder. Um, you know, these inflection points, it's, it's getting bad. It's getting... Uh, it, it, it's, it's getting worse. And, and this is exactly, you know, what, what Donald Trump says, you know, publicly feeds, you know, the recruitment, uh, you know, recruitment of ISIS uh, and, and other terrorist groups. Donald Trump's sound bites have been found in uh, Al-Shabaab recruitment videos in Somalia and vice versa. I mean, and so you have, you know, two sides, two polarly opposite sides on this sort of clash of civilizations paradigm uh, who are feeding off one another. And obviously, as you know, within journalism, we have a very famous adage that if it bleeds, it leads, right? And so the more sensationalistic and the more the sexier, the more confrontational, controversial uh, the stories are, the more coverage that they get. And so uh, you know, that's why I've dedicated my life to the public domain, uh, doing things like Meet the Press and NPR and Al Jazeera and CNN, uh, because I understand that that's what helps shape public opinion. Uh, globally, and uh, you know, we live in an instant information age, and things that happen half a world away in places like Bali, Madrid, London, Mumbai have a direct impact on us here in the U.S. and vice versa. So, so can you maybe just like walk me through like what what's your day like when one of these instances <laughs> occur after like Orlando or or, oh. or San Bernardino? What, what what like what's your process? Like what happens to you? Um, how do you sort of go about your your day? 
there's no uh, there's no process uh you know i get seeing i get breaking news alerts and every time there's a breaking news alert on my phone i pray to god it's not you know an act of terrorism somewhere um you know i remember uh, the orlando nightclub shooting i woke up at five o'clock in the morning uh for my morning prayers and i saw uh you know obviously it happened in the middle of the night it was a breaking news alert about a mass shooting that had been done uh where 50 people had been killed uh so obviously you know, information still coming out. So you start doing research, you make, start making phone calls, start finding out what it is, you know, what's going on, who it is. Same thing with Charlie. Basically every, basically any global crisis in the world that happens involving Muslims and Islam, I'm a part of it. Uh, and that is aged me about 40 years in the last uh, 10. I'm not even 40 years old yet, but I look like I'm 60. Um, but it, it's one of those things where I'm just, you know, I, I, my, my entire life operates on the 24 seven news cycle, uh, 365 days a year, which is both exhilarating and uh, quite depressing at the same time. Um, so, you know, we were talking earlier about how there is this kind of almost negative feedback loop in, in Europe. And I'm wondering if it's, it's coming to the United States. I mean, you have, you know, for example, governors, for example, uh, have, you know, a few months ago, claimed or pledged that they would not accept Syrian refugees or yeah. some governors even said they wouldn't accept any Muslim refugees. Um, you have, you know, we're, we're talking during the Republican convention where there's all sort of manner of Islamophobic uh, comments that, that are, are being hurled and insults that are being hurled. And of course there's obviously, you know, Donald Trump um, who, you know, made his blanket ban on immigration from anyone from a particular religion. I, I guess I'm, I'm wondering, it, it seems that this, the sort of the, the negative feedback loop that we see in Europe is, is starting to replicate it here in the United States. And that just kind of seems depressing. It's very depressing. I mean, at the Republican National uh, Convention a few nights ago, we had a, you know, C-list actor, Antonio Sabato Jr., uh, who got on stage and said that he's absolutely certain that President Barack Obama is a Muslim. Now, I mean, I always like to play the fill in the blank game. I was like, you know, imagine if somebody went on stage and said, you know, President Obama is a Jew or a Mormon or a Hindu or a Buddhist and trying to make it sound like a pejorative slur. Um, you know, it would be roundly condemned and criticized uh, unequivocally and unanimously by everyone. But again, sadly, Islamophobia has become sort of an accepted form of xenophobia in, in in America today, and you can always take a pot shot at uh, Muslims, Arabs, and South Asians, uh, and seem to get away with it with impunity. So, how do we get to the point where you have the same sort of taboos uh, against being like anti-Semitic or against mm -hmm. being racist? Frankly, even the anti-Semitic ones are starting to to um, dilute in the Trump uh, uh, the Trump campaign. But in general, I think that taboo is very strong. Um, yeah. How how do we sort of get Islamophobia to that to that level? I think it's, again, it has to go, it, it has to, to, it revolves around allies speaking out, right? Uh, I think uh, the reason anti-Semitism became so toxic and radioactive uh, in terms of a taboo here in the United States, uh, and rightfully so, was because you had a lot of, you know, Gentiles and non-Jewish people speak out against it. Uh, you know, where people would, re where it would resonate with people. You know, when I go on television, Mark, Everybody expects me as a prominent Muslim public intellectual to defend Islam and Muslims. But if a white guy goes on 
CNN. My friend Peter Beinart, a uh, prominent liberal Jewish public intellectual, goes on CNN and and uh, condemns Islamophobia, which he has numerous times. He's a dear friend of mine. That actually resonates a lot more with the American public. And so, you know, some of the work that I do in the media, uh, the most fulfilling stuff is is when it doesn't have to do with religion or terrorism. When I, as a human rights lawyer, can go on NPR and talk about marriage equality, even though I'm not LGBT or immigration, comprehensive immigration reform, even though I'm not an immigrant or universal health care, even though I have health care uh, for myself and my family. Again, you know, we need to speak out as allies for one another in order to help lift up, uh, you know, disenfranchised and uh, marginalized communities, not only here in the United States, but all around the world as well. Um, so you published this book. Two months ago, what's what's next for you? What are you working on? Any any long term <laughs> projects you want to tease for me for us? I am uh, I'm, I'm I honestly, Mark, I'm trying to go two. I'm going. I, I literally am trying to go two weeks without a major global terrorist attack anywhere in the world. Uh, you know, I, I take small incremental uh, victories. Um, you know, I, what we're what, what we're dealing with in the world right now, um, we're really at a crossroads as a human race, I believe. Uh, and it's really important uh, for there to be people out there who are bringing more light than heat. And sadly, um, you know, there, we have plenty of heat out there. And especially, you know, in the next, oh, I don't know, three and a half months before the 2016 general election in November, um, we're going to see a lot more heat. Uh, and and it's going to be uh, it's going to be quite telling uh, in terms of the path that our country decides to take. Uh, whether it's going to be one towards, uh, you know, peaceful coexistence and diversity and inclusion or one where Donald Trump's in charge. And I hope it's the former and not the latter. Uh, well, you know, just go on CNN more and make it so, my friend. I will do my part. All right. Well, thank you, Arsalan. Thanks so much for speaking with me again. It's my pleasure, Mark. Anytime. Thank you for having me. All right. Thank you for listening. Thank you to our salon. And yeah, podcast keeps trucking on. Thanks everyone for sharing it with your friends, your colleagues, giving it a review on iTunes. It all helps spread the word about this, this growing podcast. All right. See you next time. Bye. And go buy his book. 